0: Welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. thank you for listening. David. Yeah. You look awful. (laughs) Thank you. How you doing? Uh, Awful. Allergies
1: a little rough? Allergies are rough, but it's also been a shitty day. Oh my god, why is that? Well first, let me say, uh, today we're going to be talking about Sydney Lumet.
0: Oh yes, yes. We're going to get there. Yeah.
1: Don't worry. But as listeners know, we're going to spend a few minutes bullshitting first. Right. Um, Well, this isn't bullshit. Or no, it is (laughs) what I'm about to say is isn't bullshit. What happened to me is bullshit. Total bullshit. Total bullshit. I got up this morning and, uh, to find that my car was gone, and all the cars on my street were gone, because there was temporary, temporarily, today only, no parking, 4 a.m. to 4 p.m., yeah. and nobody knew that, because there's like two signs on the whole block, and they're both hidden by trees. What did I tell you? Bullshit, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, if I'm a little cranky today, that's why, because I had to go pay $250 to get my car out of the lot.
0: I realize, uh, yeah, I mean,
1: if... When I got there, of course, there was a night's nice parking ticket waiting for me. Of
0: course, yes. Uh, like, at what point does, like, a city employee or something realize, like, huh, all these cars are on this street, regardless of these signs that we put up. <laughs> you know, maybe we didn't put them in the right place. But we do have the opportunity to make a bunch of money. I think we'll go with that.
1: Yeah, but th- but you know what? That's the thing, is it? it's this whole... It's a system, and there isn't actually like one person like throwing the money in the air and laughing. Like,
0: but I have to. I want to assume there is a guy <laughs> with a cigarette holder and a monocle. <laughs> you know,
1: I know how it is. But yeah, there is really no one to direct my rage. So
0: toward. you, can direct it at me, David, <laughs> because I'll tell you what. <laughs> Never mind. So somebody I will passed direct away some rage at you. Yeah. Oh, okay. Some rage Why because is that? you don't like Mash. I,
1: that's right. The TV show, yeah. which I love. And even better than the movie, which I don't really like. Yeah, uh, but Larry Gelbart died, and we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about it because this is a movie podcast, and that yeah. was a TV show. But uh, did uh, I? I
0: really loved Mash. I thought it was a great show. I I uh, I like it. I think it's a, I think it's a very good show. I, I I think like I I like it more. I liked it's more dramatic moments than it's comic uh-huh. moments. Um, and I think that's the. Uh, I think maybe that's the problem is that it's it's viewed as a comedy, but almost any time somebody brings up the moments they like, it's almost always the drama. And I feel like uh, maybe if they had just gotten rid of the zany stuff and had it just be award like a war drama. No, it that's been boring. A I mean that's kinda of part
1: of the part of the point is that these guys are being sort of cavalier and jokey in the midst of some really horrible
0: stuff. Cavalier and jokey I can live with. A man dressing like a woman. No thank you. Well, he was... But that's commenting, too. He was trying to... He was just trying to get out. I know, but, like, it's... But every... Like, the response, everyone's being, like, really zany about it, and just... Like, it just... When it falls into, like, a very standard... Standard now, probably not at the time, uh, sitcom cliches, I didn't care for it. But, like, characters who... ...are in the midst of a horrible situation or trying to make the best of it by making jokes and trying to be, as you say, very cavalier. That sounds great to me. I wish that that's where it had stopped uh-huh. and just been that because, as strange as it sounds, them being trying to be funny and making jokes in the midst of this actually makes the drama... It almost heightens it a little bit because
1: yeah that's what i'm saying if it had been just a pure drama it wouldn't right. have had the same punch
0: right no I, if the characters were the same i think it would have been would have been fine and and their right. wisecracks and stuff but just like get get rid of the laugh track because it was so infrequent that it was surpri- you know it'd be surprising when you heard it <laughs> uh you know so but that's the thing is i realize i'm very much in the minority uh about this but uh but yeah so uh, we mourn the loss of course of uh Gary Gil- Gelbart. Bart, Bart, yeah. Uh Gelbart? Geb wait. Gelbart. Gelbart. Okay, yeah. so I said it right the first time. Yeah. Um you know, we mourn the loss of him and uh, recognize that he did some really amazing things. Uh but the most ama- you know, the most uh notable thing that he did was, you know, co create uh Mash, which I am not a big fan of and David <laughs> gave me crap Do you like before. the movie? Not really.
1: Yeah, me either. Yeah, it's because the movie d- doesn't have any of the seriousness. It's the, movie's almost, the movie is snotty and anarchic. Yeah, um, which seems like not the right. It just seems like a very sort of uh, privileged point of view to have that. Yeah, uh, to have that opinion about war. Yeah. You know, it's it's the opinion of someone who will never have to go to war. Ah, yes. Okay. You know, um, yeah. not that I will ever have to. Thank God. Right. But I still. Sympathize with people who, who do and have had to go. Uh, and that's why I like the TV show better is because it took, uh, you know, they were, of course, joking all the time, but it took the fact that they were
0: in a war very seriously. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I remember, like, one of the one of the rules of the show was that as far as the laugh track goes, uh, there would never be a laugh track in the operating room. Right. That, was, that was one of the rules, right? Yes, there was. And, and when I hear that, I think, like, oh, okay, I, I like that rule. I mean it's it, it was rather uh I'll, I'll use the term groundbreaking because while I personally thought like, well, maybe you just shouldn't have a laugh track at all, the fact that they have they probably it in didn't some have scenes, that
1: luxury of that in that time right,
0: but the fact that they have it in some scenes and then re- and then say, we will not have it in these others, I like that, and uh-huh. then the the absence of the laugh track had to have had an effect. Uh, even if it 's unconscious on its audience, so I like stuff like that i mean i, I don't I certainly don 't discount the show in general. I liked it more than the movie to be sure um, but yeah, I liked it I liked uh, its more uh, dramatic uh, elements so but David a moment ago i 'm sorry, you used the word what was it anarchic yeah anarchic yeah, what does that mean like anarchy. Oh, I an, see An anar- okay. anarchist Alright, sounds to me like you're trying to sound a little too intellectual, David Was, Would that would that word intellectual, would that have quotes around it? It sure would Oh, so a little, I'm,
1: uh, I'm fake intellectual It would
0: appear so uh, Maybe, you know what, maybe I didn't do it with, right with my voice It uh-huh. uh, sounds to me, David, like you're trying to be a little intellectual <laughs> Alright, which basically means uh, means quotes uh yeah, so
1: we were... yeah we 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 lost a listener recently. We uh, we 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 got the sad sad news via Twitter that someone was going yeah. to stop listening to us because we were too intellectual.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. And it. Uh, and then he followed it up with bleh, which actually I kind of like. Um. But the, yeah. It's it, I'm not trying to be defensive or anything, but because it mostly mystified me. That's just like. Nobody has ever accused us of being intellectual, or, <laughs> uh, quotes or otherwise. Yeah, you know, I mean, but that, but it did get me thinking that, like, what David, in your view, what, what does intellectual mean? Like a person who is an intellectual or tries to be an intellectual. Like, what does that mean to you? Um,
1: I, I guess someone who reads a lot. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> See, no, I think in, in the. In as it applies to us, intellectual, we would have have like us talking more about like uh, film theory and film history than just talking about the movies themselves, which is kind of what we do, and it's kind of always what we've done. Right. So I don't know how we this guy like got got sick of it, or if we went over the edge or something. But uh, but the, it's I think it's it's telling that he put quotes around intellectual. He clearly right. thinks we're trying to be that and aren't.
0: Yeah, and. And don't get me wrong, I, I don't count myself as an intellectual. I I, uh, I have certain intellectual ambitions. And, you read a lot. And I, oh, I don't read that much. Uh, in fact, very little. Um, I did recently start a, n- a new Nero Wolf book. Um, not new. It's new to me. It was, it was 60 years old. I now. don't read
1: books anymore. I read there, a lot more there, when I was... No, there's no mission statement. I didn't like decide I'm done yeah. reading books. <laughs> I just don't anymore. And well, I'll tell you why. Because... Um, uh I don't take the bus anymore. Yeah, I don't my old job, I was taking the bus uh when I yeah and uh I don't and that was when I would do all my reading. Now I just have very little time for reading and I subscribe to two magazines and I there's a couple newspapers that I read yeah. that takes up most of my reading time.
0: Yeah, I feel bad about it. I I feel like I'm I'm being a bad uh, bad intellectual. Um <laughs> but uh but yeah, I mean do you think that we like, I don't consider myself an intellectual, but I feel like some of the, some of the episodes that we've, some of the topics that we've tackled, like, for example, our recent discussion of class uh, in Yeah, film I think and
1: th- th- this guy just wanted us to talk about how cool District 9 was. And it was cool. Yeah. Uh, and there are other podcasts that do that very well.
0: It makes it, me wonder at what point he jumped in. Like, maybe he started <laughs> at episode, like, 110 and he didn't get around to hearing our haze Code episode or any of those other, you know, episodes like this. You know, like or, that one, yeah. Or, or filmmakers overcoming obstacles or, or something like that. Like, I don't know. I mean, there must have been a small window because we do episodes like that every once in a while.
1: Yeah. But so, th- uh, th- this is all to say that um, we we are who we are. We're not yeah. changing for you. That's right. For you or you. That's right. We very much appreciate you it's, listening. Especially and, not you. Yeah. And uh, I always... Remember to go click on donate on the website. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> if you enjoy our pseudo intellectual uh, comments,
0: uh, head on over there. Uh, but, but yeah,
1: da- we are who we are, and and we can do bad all by all by ourselves.
0: All right, <laughs> we're getting there, David. We're uh, this is one of our better uh, segue episodes. Um, is it? Why did no. I just say that? That's not true at all. Um, yeah. Uh, real quick, uh, we will touch on what we uh, something that we've mentioned before, although we. Uh, our official episode about what a film critic does and what it is is no longer available uh but uh we'll see what we can do about that sometime in the future. Yeah. Um but yeah, and so I was watching uh like Access Hollywood or Entertainment Tonight. I don't recall which one it was, but I happened to see um Tyler Perry. And again, should preface David and I have not seen any Tyler Perry no, films. No, I've seen. Oh, w-
1: I saw Diary, Diary of a Mad Black Woman. Okay, you saw. All right, it's You saw, awful. You saw that one. Yeah, it's, it's really horrible. Yeah,
0: um, I kind of want to. I kind of want to take a take a page from the experts and in intermediates book because they are now defunct, so we can do whatever we want with their corpse. All right. Um, and so I want to do a. Uh, will we be infected? In which you and I just watched... For, for those who don't know, Experts in yeah.
1: Intermediates was a very cool podcast that no longer exists. Right. Uh, that uh, was hosted by our friend Jason Eakin and, right. uh, and some guy named BJ. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and wh- one thing they would occasionally do was a segment called will, will We Be Infected? which In which they would watch or read or listen to something terrible.
0: Yeah. The implication being that, uh, you know, you have... as. Film snobs or art snobs, intellectuals, you, intellectuals, if you will, um, you know you go into certain things with a preconceived notion, and uh, you probably never, never bother actually really considering it or analyzing it. And so, I feel like you and I should do that with the the Tyler Perry films. Yeah. Just well, watch I d- all. I, of hey, them.
1: I gave Diary of Mad Black Woman uh, a fair chance.
0: Yeah, and as uh, as listeners of our clip show know, uh, I made a New Year's resolution a couple years ago. To finally give Tyler Perry a chance, and uh, have not done it so far. Yeah. But what I will say is that... Uh,
1: I made a New Year's resolution this past year to uh, try to remember people's names, because oh, I'm right. really bad at that. Yeah. Haven't really made any headway there. I, I've worked at this, this current job that I, that I work at <laughs> yeah. for about six months. There are people I've talked to every day for six months whose names I don't know.
0: <laughs> I've had that I uh, with people that I've known longer, in fact, but I, I don't see them very regularly. Um, for example are uh, your tall friend who helped you move along with me. What's his name?
1: <laughs>
0: Manuel. Manuel. Thank you. That is so <laughs> bothersome to me. I was <laughs> thinking about it the other day, and I was just like, and the only thing I came up with was Ian Gomez, and that's not his name. <laughs> and I have no idea why I thought, but I was like, it's something like Ian. Turns out it's nothing like Ian.
1: So we were saying about Tyler yeah. Perry. we Tyler gotta, Perry, we got to yes. get to the Sydney lumet Absolutely, uh, yes, it's topic. coming.
0: It's coming, everybody. <laughs> um... Yeah, and so I saw Tyler Perry on Access Hollywood or whatever uh, walking the red carpet. It was the premiere of I Can Do Bad All By Myself. And he... I, I think somebody had asked him uh, if... about the, the reviews of his films or or whatever. Or I think perhaps the lack, uh, the, the lack of reviews. I don't think... Uh, I don't remember if it was screened for critics. But... Uh, and he made a comment that, like, he goes just a very a very flippant like he goes he goes ah oh, i don't care about them you know he's like this weekend i'll let the real critics decide the implication of course being the real critics are our audiences and that and the only thing that matters is audience opinion which to a degree is true uh, but what he's from saying is that the real
1: view. critics are the critics who like
0: him <laughs> that's, tr- <laughs> that's true yeah i mean when uh yeah I guess, yeah, I guess that's true. Although I don't know of any, although the Onion AV Club gave I Can Do Bad All By Myself a B-. minus. Huh. So uh, based primarily on the lead performance of uh, of the actress whose name I forget. Uh, she was in... Taraji P. Henson? That's the one. I never remember her first name, Taraji. That's an awesome name. Yeah. I should name my kid that when I have one.
1: But um, Yeah, you should. Boy or girl. <laughs> it's decided. Taraji.
0: Taraji P. Smith. <laughs> um, I assume the P is part of the name. Um, and it really is. Uh, it really is fascinating. Just the idea that, and we won't. We can't go into it very, very much here. But just the idea that, like, oh, these people over here, these intellectuals, you could say, uh-huh. they don't matter. They don't. They don't like my movies. But look, all these people like my movies. They make millions of dollars. So clearly, these people's opinions over here are rendered. Uh, pointless or useless. Yeah. Well, he needs. What he needs to say is that, um,
1: you know, he can say I don't make my movies for the critics. That's, right. That's true. Yeah. And uh, even though that would just personally annoy me, yeah. I wouldn't hold it against him. Yeah. But having that that little like the real critics, it's so dismissive of what critics do. That's yeah. that's what really really bothers me.
0: Yeah, and I, it basically puts. The audience on a pedestal and audiences you know I mean they see crap all the time <laughs> um, and so yeah and, and that and again like there are I mean Connor Oberst has in his songs talked about how he's not his songs are not for critics I mean if critics want to enjoy them they're welcome to but he's you know I'm not singing for you as a song as a lyric of uh-huh. his uh, spe- speaking specifically to critics and, uh, and so there was a time I would been able to
1: place that, but, uh, I don't remember it now. Uh, I haven't, I, 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 I used
0: to be a much bigger fan of counterovers in my, yeah. in, one, in my younger twenties, which is why I thought you might be able to place it, uh, faster <laughs> than, than I, than I could, which is to say I, 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 can't, but, um, but yeah, to, to just, to just say like, oh, the only thing the ma- cause then how is, how is that any different than the studio mentality? Which the only thing that matters is how mu- how well it does at yeah. the box office, and then you come to realize, oh, it's not uh but I don't think he is motivated by money Tyler Perry yeah uh, he's got he's got enough of it He has a bunch of money, he doesn't need to be motivated by it any- anymore, but uh but yeah, it's stuff like that, just offhand comments like that that listeners uh always be wary of, always defend always defend critics against that kind of attitude. Uh, when if you hear somebody say, I mean, I heard it all the time uh, when I worked at uh, various video stores or a movie theater. That someone says, "Oh, whatever the critics say, I just do the opposite." Uh-huh. Just if somebody says that, uh, in and you're within earshot, whether they're saying it to you or otherwise, uh, butt into their conversation and defend critics to them, and uh, just say, as David, uh, as you once mentioned, that between Tyler Perry and studios and critics. Uh, only one of them really wants your money. Uh-huh. And that's the studios, and they have really cultivated this idea of, oh, critics are not with you. We're with you. We make the movies you like. These critics are trying to ruin your good time. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah, let's, let's do that. Let's go out there and let's leave the charge, the pro-critic charge, when we can turn things around. Absolutely. We, hey, we did it with Letterboxd. <laughs> you know, when DVD started coming out, I worked at Best Buy, and then yeah. I worked at video stores, and multiple times every day, I would have to explain to someone why Letterboxd is better than full screen. Yeah. And uh, I, I did not grow exasperated. I did not give up. Yeah. I went out there in the fucking trenches, and I did it every damn day. And Letterboxd won.
0: Well, and I also think it's a function of people just buying newer TVs, and almost all, wi- all TVs are, like, widescreen at this point. Don't discount my victory. No, I'm, I'm saying the re- I, I think you convinced uh, a TV-producing executive, <laughs> by TV producing, I mean the actual sets. And, uh, right. and they're like, yeah, this guy's got a point what can i do now see so
1: <laughs> one guy it was when titanic came out on dvd yeah because it didn't come out right after the movie It didn't come out till 99 or 2000 when i was working at best right. buy and one, and one guy and they had it in both uh and and the guy picked it up and he was like oh i can't buy this one it's it's a uh, widescreen that doesn't work and i was like oh what do you mean it doesn't work he's like oh, i thought it doesn't work it's, it's just that it's stupid <laughs> <laughs>
0: and then you of course said you're stupid <laughs>
1: No, I explained very calmly and rationally.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right, glad to hear it. Okay. <sighs> to the topic. Nineteen minutes in. Damn it. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh well. So, David, uh huh. Who are we talking about today? Well, it's it's episode one hundred and
1: thirty. Oh yes, it is. Right? Yes. It is, right? That's what I named the file. Yeah, one thirty, <laughs> yeah. Um and uh listeners know that every ten episodes we do a, a, a profile of an artist. Uh, a filmmaker, an actor, uh director of photography, what else have we done? A costume designer? Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm just killing time because Tyler's walked away from the mic. But uh this one's uh this one's a director, like most of them are. And it's simply the as you know because we've already said it right three times during this during the podcast. Alright, did I kill did I kill time
0: uh, <laughs> effectively for you, Tyler? Good Lord, David. You know, <laughs> As as we mentioned a moment ago, episode 130, you should be able to do better than that as opposed to get a little <laughs> chuckle with yourself saying costume designer. <laughs> <laughs> Good lord. All right. So, so uh, a long time ago, we had the misfortune of talking about journeyman filmmakers.
1: <laughs> and we got, yeah, we got a lot of feedback. But, uh.
0: Feedback is one way of putting it. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, and one of the one in, of that, the in th- that it was shrill and piercing the yes. way feedback can be <laughs> exactly <laughs> to the point that you have to cover your ears <laughs> and run away, um, and so yeah, and one of the and probably one of the film one of the filmmakers we talked about, and I'd say the primary filmmaker that we talked about as a journeyman filmmaker was Sidney Lumet. Okay, and. Yes. To g- to go back and possibly get more uh, angry emails again. Um, why did we classify him that way, David?
1: Because he's really good at making films, but uh, there's not um, there's not necessarily a thematic through line, right? In in his movies,
0: nor is there a like definite visual style that you can right. instantly say, "Oh, that's obviously
1: Sydney Lumet." Um, Although I'd say he might have that a little more. But still, not really.
0: Right. But what's one thing that, the way that you can tell a film is directed by him, I think, is you have to, first off, you can't play the game where it's like, all right, you got to tell who this director is by one still of their movie. Well, you can't do that. Uh-huh. But, uh, or it's like, all right, here's the th- here's the theme, and you have to tell me what director it probably is. And it's like, all right, uh, let's see. Isolation, loneliness, the world being against you, I'm going to say Roman Polanski. You're right. <laughs> uh, and But th- as you said, there is nothing like that with Sidney Lamette. But if you watch his movie, if you watch, like, for example, I'd say, oh, 11 of his movies, um, <laughs> all the way through, you will see that he's very consistent in that. I mean, his movies are about character. They are usually uh, f- relatively dialogue-heavy, Um. And that there's usually wonderful acting, and that he directs to the performance. That's what he lets guide him. Yeah. Um, well, let's
1: let's get let's get started. Right. We have gone too long. Okay. Uh, and like you said, we have eleven films to get to. <laughs> I'm going to make the disclaimer. I make every time we do one of these. We're not going to talk about every one of his films. Right. If we don't talk about the one you wanted us to talk about, we're sorry.
0: Yeah. You can always talk about it on the forum, the Battleship yes, Forum. Yes, please do.
1: Yes. And don't forget to click on donate, yeah oh
0: i'll save it to the end go
1: ahead, okay no I mean, you've got the the master list oh there. indeed
0: well, uh we'll go back with his directorial debut as far as film goes he'd, he motion had, pictures, yes. yeah, motion pictures he had done you know stage uh he'd done stage plays, he'd done a lot of television uh before he made the move to uh to film, he's one of those guys. Like like uh, Frankenheimer
1: did a lot of that. Yeah, uh, Altman did yeah. a lot of these, uh, a lot of television, a yeah. lot of live television.
0: Yeah, yeah, which is uh, fascinating. There's not a, that much live television anymore, and I'd like, to, especially like live dramas. Like, yeah, I mean, there's stuff like, you know, Saturday Night Live, where you know that it's a set they're working on and and all that sort of thing. But yeah like, really in-depth live television they don't do anymore, and I would like to see a return Didn't they to redo Failsafe live a few they years did. ago? They George, did. George Clooney directed it. Yeah, I didn't see that. Uh, I didn't either, but apparently there were, like, two flubs, but the rest of it went off uh, great. That's so, great. But uh, but we will talk about the original so, uh, Failsafe in just a few moments. Okay. Um, First... 12 Angry Men. First 12 Angry Men, which, of course, listeners know is my uh, third favorite movie of all time. Of course the listeners know that. There's no question they know <laughs> it. Um, but, uh, and i got to say, uh, I I mean, there, Sidney Lumet is well-documented. I mean, he's written books about filmmaking. Uh, I believe he, he wrote one called On Making Movies, which is considered to be the standard uh, as far as books about directing written by a director. Um, and so... Uh, but what's interesting is, as I mentioned with the Frank Conniff uh, episode, is that if there's a filmmaker I like, with with a few exceptions, uh, like Orson Welles uh, most notably, uh, if there's an artist that I really like, I will do a certain degree of research into their lives, but I like to kind of view their, their work on its own uh-huh. and see if their lives come through uh, in that way. And so, like the few things that I know about, for example, Roman Polanski or Woody Allen, when you know a few things, just a few events, it helps you to appreciate their work, and then you just see what they have to say about those events through their work.
1: Oh, can I interrupt you to go on a completely unfilm related tangent? And oh, jeez. probably lose us a few listeners.
0: Oh, criminally. Okay, yeah. <laughs>
1: you mentioned Roman Polanski and Woody Allen. Yeah. Um, I want to stop. I want to stop having to hear people complain about Michael Vick coming back to the NFL. You know what? What he did was fucking awful. Yeah. He was punished for it. He did his time. And you know what? Whether or not I actually think he's rehabilitated and he's really sorry for what he did doesn't matter. Until he fucks up again, we have to treat him as though he's really rehabilitated and sorry for what he did because that's how America works. So shut the fuck up and let him play football. And if he fucks up again, then, you know, we'll send him back to prison. It, it really annoys me.
0: <laughs> what the hell is your problem? Why did you say that right now?
1: Because you mentioned Roman Plotsky <laughs> and Woody Allen, and we've forgiven them for doing far more heinous things. Okay. Uh, well, no. Roman Plotsky did something far more heinous. Yeah. Woody Allen's just kind of creepy. Yeah, Woody <laughs> Allen,
0: it was just more of a faux pas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was. Where is? is there, have there been people saying that? Yeah, all over the place. Huh. People, I'm, ugh, people are
1: protesting outside Eagles games. It's it's ridiculous.
0: Well, it's not like he's Pete Rose. The thing that he did had nothing to do with the game itself or the league. Yeah, but it's just people
1: go. You know what? I mean, I, I'm going to sound cold here, but people treat like cruelty to dogs as if it's uh, the single worst thing you can ever do. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's up there. Th- yeah, it's really awful. <laughs> and I'm not. Condoning what he did, I think it's awful. I don't think I want to be friends with the guy. Yeah,
0: but I'm just saying,
1: this is America, and we have to treat him as if he's rehabilitated.
0: Although I imagine there, are... damn it, David. All right, I imagine there are some people who feel that his his pun that the punishment did not fit the crime, and that his rehabilitation. You know, like if somebody. If somebody committed murder and then they got like five years, not to imply that this is like murder, but, and they got uh, five years in jail. Now, five years in jail is pretty rough. I mean, he killed a, a number of dogs, so it yeah. might add up
1: to a murder. Okay, all
0: right. <laughs> I don't know what the ratio is. Um, but, you know, and so I, there might be somebody who feels like, oh, well, he didn't do enough time, you know, to fit, to fit the crime to go with like a yeah. 70s cop. It's,
1: it's, well, it's hard to decide what the, the, uh, Punishment should be for... Cruelty to animals. For cruelty to animals. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not really sure what the precedent is. But um, I think you're probably right. I think he could have done more time because what he did was really awful. But he didn't. It's over now. You can be mad at the justice system not giving you
0: enough time, but he
1: should be allowed
0: to play football. You know who you can be real mad at? If you want to be mad at someone, why don't you just take your rage... Shift it on over to Chris Brown, uh-huh. and uh, I'm on board with you. Yeah, go right ahead. You go go say protest anything Chris Brown. you want. So uh, okay. so
1: anyway, back to twelve Angry Men.
0: Good Lord, David. <laughs> hey, I'm I'm right there with you, but like uh, I literally had something to say about the show, <laughs> and I decided to wait until the end. <laughs> but I guess I guess it was in the moment. Hey, you know what? It's this riffing and this winging it. What Battleship pretension is all about? Yeah. What was I saying? We're, we're uh, talking about Twelve, 12 Angry Men. men. Um, damn it! I got nothing. <laughs>
1: you know, you're mentioning knowing things about the the filmmakers' lives, right? Oh,
0: okay. And so, um, so I don't. I, so I, I, I kind of purposely didn't know much about Sidney Lamette, right down to certain specifics of his career. Like, I never knew until doing research for this, The Twelve Angry Men was his first film. I thought it was maybe his second or his third. Uh-huh. You know, like... And it's the one that put him on the map, like Spielberg with Jaws or something like sure. that. Um, but, no, this is his first feature-length film. And again, TV will get you ready for it, and it is shot in a in a way that kind of evokes TV, but at the same time, you watch Twelve Angry, Angry Men, you see a man who who has... Total control and a complete understanding of what the camera can do and how the camera can enhance uh what is essentially a stage play uh-huh and it's it's really amazing I mean just the 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 basic thing and I'm sure I've mentioned it before is just how just how he progressively moved the camera over the course of the film that it starts out from an upward angle looking down so that you feel so that you as the audience. Certainly unconsciously, but you feel like you get it. You know who each of these guys are. Uh You're not you're not given their names. You are only given aspects about them and you think that's all you need. And it's and then it becomes you're on their level about halfway through and you're right there with them in the thick of it. And then by the end of it, the camera has moved down facing up so that these guys tower over you and you realize I don't know who these guys are and I'm never going to. Uh-huh. Just as if I was a character in this, the audience wouldn't know who i am it's It's impossible to really know who a person is in two hours, even if it's a real time two hours you yeah. know that's that's it's almost It's almost a comment on filmmaking itself and how so many directors, good directors, in fact, would have you believe that they can tell you everything you need to know about a character in two hours, and he well, says you can't.
1: You mentioned maybe you, f- you learned this in your in your uh, minimal research that you yeah. did, uh, but you mentioned the stage play aspect, and I wonder how much rehearsing went on with Twelve Men before before the camera started rolling because it feels like it, it it feels like that choice a lot of the choices he makes with the camera in the movie, in those that you talked about, and also like when to use close ups and stuff. Yeah, uh, it it seems like the kind of choice that a, a director would make that, that would come out of out of a rehearsal, like really oh, yeah. getting to know the performance and the actor. Yeah. Because you I mean you talk about how he he really directs for actors. Yeah. And that's never more clear than in, in this movie. Yeah. Because uh, he's using the tools of film, uh, notably the camera. Yeah. To to compliment the performance and not it, it's never the other way around in his movies.
0: Right, which I think particularly is, in this one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But but I mean, I would say there's almost more technique. In this film, than maybe any of the others on this list. I mean, he really. I mean, you that's, definitely.
1: That's why I asked about the rehearsal thing because it feels like the, these sort of uh, tec- technical choices. Yeah. Came out of. I mean, maybe he just knew. The, maybe he's such a good director that he knew exactly how everything was going to be played and that these yeah. these choices would work. But it, it really feels organic.
0: I think there was. Uh, I think I had read that there was a, a whole lot of rehearsal. So much so that actual shooting. It was like a few weeks, huh. you know. But he had he. Had, it was so front-loaded with rehearsal that by the time, you know, by the time you shot it, it was almost. Uh, <laughs> is that <laughs> that's true? You actually you heard that? Well, I think I, I think it's on the trivia page of Twelve Angry Men. Oh, I M D B. that's
1: IMDb. That was, a very, that was very astute of me.
0: It absolutely was, <laughs> but it's but it's one that I mean, as a as his first film, I mean, and being what it is, you'd have to have an insane amount of rehearsal and also during that rehearsal while they're going through the because it is basically real time as as the actors are going through you can kind of trust them and just decide while the rehearsal is going on where the camera is going to be and like all right I see a good expression on his face we'll zoom in on that um yeah it's really 12 angry men is is as i've said it's one of my favorite movies and it's just and I like that recently, I remember on the first AFI list, it wasn't, it wasn't on there. And uh, it's, a lot of people liked it, but it wasn't considered a really great, amazing film. I mean, it was it had great, amazing performances, but the film itself wasn't really getting uh, a, a whole lot of love. But, mm-hmm. uh, but on the, it, it has appeared on the most recent AFI list, uh, and it will, in fact, appear uh, on the Battleship Pretension Top 100.
1: Yeah, which will be out in a week or two.
0: Yeah, uh, that's what I was going to save until the end. But now that it's uh, organic, I, I did want to say that uh, I know that in the in the uh, like the newsletter, or maybe it was the Facebook uh, announcement calling for submissions. That uh, I said that uh, it would be available on the seventh. Uh, I was being optimistic, but at the same time, uh, it took us a while to tabulate the votes. Because some people, even after we made the announcement, some people felt that it was not necessary to email it to both David and myself. It was like a – I feel like it was like a mom and dad situation. It's like, (laughs) oh, Tyler is not going to like me submitting this. Uh, I'll just send it to David. And so – So, yeah, we
1: we had to spend quite a while going through all that. Right. Um, And then – yeah, but it it should be up in two weeks, right? We'll talk about it in two weeks.
0: Absolutely, yes, yes. Um, Because
1: next week is the uh, summer movie wrap-up.
0: Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> mid September. Um that's still the summer technically. Is it really? Summer, the the
1: fall sol- uh solstice isn't until the 22nd.
0: Okay, good. Um but yeah, 12 Angry Men got a lot of submissions uh on uh the battleship Retention top 100 and which which made me uh, very happy because I feel like um amongst film students and film snobs um certain films certain types of films uh, are not really championed like unless it is like a s st- like not strictly visual and technical wonder, but like it needs to have almost more of that, and performances and characters seem almost secondary to it a little bit um
1: yeah the, the, I think there are a lot of film students who feel that way yeah because uh I say students in particular because at the end of the day it 's uh as um as difficult as a really technically proficient film can be, yeah, it's something that's uh, – that you can follow a process and get a result. Yeah. You know, and yeah. It's, it's something that's concrete, you know, yeah. and it's difficult – it's more difficult to get a good performance out of actors. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, that, yeah, that's why I feel a lot of well, – that's why I feel a lot of film students uh, put all their effort into the way their film looks uh, because yeah. – directing is not a it's not it's not even really something you can you can teach all that well i think it's yeah. you just kind of have to be the
0: right kind of people person absolutely which is what we are david you and i i think i could direct <laughs> i think you could too david i've you've directed me in uh films back in school but you can listen to another episode uh, for that uh, yeah what's although. next uh what, well did you have anything you wanted to say about tw- i mean 12 Angry Men is one I, of I the bigger i think i said plenty yeah well <laughs> That uh, make
1: me feel in, you know
0: how about this uh, did you want to cap off the discussion of 12 angry men
1: I just did by saying what's next <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh good lord you're a ridiculous man <laughs> um, next up is uh, a film that I saw uh, several years ago um, and it, it's really amazing uh, and that's the pawnbroker uh, starring Rod Steiger I like Rod Steiger uh, it is by far his best performance yeah Um and it's really, it's interesting in in some of the research that I was doing. Um, there's a quote by Sydney Lament, uh, Sydney Lament, in which he says that uh, that he he's he's sad that the that melodrama as a genre has kind of gone out of fashion, um, because and, and that people just kind of disregard it because there's there's a lot of potential in that in that uh, genre, and. I think the pawnbroker is is a great example of that. Um, the emo- the emotions are very heightened. Everything is very big. Uh, in it, Rod Steiger plays uh, uh, a Jewish, you know, uh, Holocaust survivor, and just the way that that has shaped his life. Um, the character. Did you ever read Mouse? No. By Art Spiegelman. No. Okay it reminds me of the the character of the father in that where he's been through the, wor- the a horrible thing the worst thing that could happen to a person uh but just the way that dog it dog fighting has... <laughs> um and so <laughs> well done david um and and just the way that it has shaped him into being a jerk frankly but you never dismiss him as a person because you're like well he has been through this thing that i haven't been through so i won't uh, so how much can i judge him and it's that it, it's it's that kind of it's that kind of uh give and take that con- the contradictory nature of the of the movie that really kept me fascinated is just how much leeway will we give this guy and he's not a he's not a murderer or anything he's just a jerk to the people that love him and the people that know him and and work with him and so uh but everything is really big. Everything is very, is very stylized. Uh, Rod Steiger, who just a few years later, would give a very, I think, a very nuanced performance uh, in, in The Heat of the Night. Mm. And, and, of course, a few years after, he had given a very subtle performance in On the Waterfront. He can be uh, a really subtle actor, uh, but he's not required to be in The Pawnbroker. He's required to give a very melodramatic performance where all the characters emotions not all of them he has to be he's very quiet in some scenes but in the scenes where he finally does explode and get big everything you just see everything it's all there on the outside uh and so i think knowing what i now know about what lumet thought about melodrama i think he realized that it can be very useful when tackling really difficult to deal with emotional subjects definitely and the pawnbroker could have been played low. It could have been played very uh, very quiet, very subtle all the time but he chooses not to and that's that's a directorial choice where he he just looked at the the message that that the film is about um, or the f- that the film has and and he directed to that. He used the acting styles he changed the acting styles. To play up the the theme and the message of the piece, and so inst- so rather than doing what what he so often would do, which was excuse me, uh, play to the performance, he actually used the performance as another uh, another element, like editing, like cinematography, to play up something else, which in this case was the theme. And the Pawnbroker, for those that haven't seen it, it, it has kind of been forgotten uh, over time. Uh, it's really an astounding movie, and you will, be, you will need a nap by the end of it because it is emotionally wrenching, and it's really great.
1: All right. What's All next? Right. Next on my list— Sorry, <laughs> i, I got to be the taskmaster today because we that's fine.
0: spent 20 minutes not, yeah. not talking about the topic. Uh, next up is Failsafe. Which I haven't seen. Which is—okay. At this point, so many people ha- know about it as the film that's just like Dr. Strangelove but not funny. And it deserves to be known as something other than that. Yeah. It is so freaking. It is so tense, and it is so. I mean, you know, you hear the story about Kubrick making Doctor Strangelove that he was just going to make a straightforward drama thriller, you know, kind of thing. And but the more he was struck by the ridiculousness of it, um. The more he decided want, that he wanted to make it a comedy. And some would have you believe that, oh, well, that's the only way to deal with this material. Turns out not. Uh-huh. Failsafe is, com- is incredibly serious. And, uh, and in the performances, it's got Walter Matthau. It's got um, Henry Fonda as, as the president. You really feel the weight of what they are talking about. The weight of, oh, th- it's the end- this is almost the end of the world. Mm -hmm. And the decisions that they have to make, the give and take, the, oh, something went wrong, and our enemies, a a major city in Russia has been destroyed, what do we do now? And some people are saying, well, we need to commit to it. We now need to destroy all of Russia, or they will destroy all of us. And the choice that is eventually made, spoilers, is that... spoilers. Spoilers. Yeah, not a lot of people have seen fail-safe, so... Spoilers, jump ahead, ah uh, forty five seconds. The the decision that is eventually made is we'll let Russia destroy one of our big cities. Wow. And that and I mean that's a major decision and I mean it's a very it's a watchman like decision uh-huh. and uh and you really feel the weight of all of it and just the pressure that comes down on on the president and but and so there's a lot of there's again he could have played this like melodrama Because everything's so big But but I think he took it, Again he took his cues from the material And said no I don't If I make it too big then it will seem almost ridiculous And it will seem like something that could never happen And so everything is very small Everything is very tense and quiet And Even in the scenes where People are speaking kind of casually There's the sense that they're only doing this To try and talk them out of the the terror That they are feeling uh, Failsafe is just, it's, re- it's probably the most. Uh, Before the Devil Knows Your Dead is pretty tense. But it is probably the, the most uh, tense film that he's done. I mean, it's he doesn't do a lot of straight up thriller, uh, and this is a, th- a thriller all the way. It's really, really great. Unless, of course, you listened to my spoiler. So, <laughs> all right. So that was Failsafe. We can move on. Okay. What's next? What's next on your list? No, what's next? Okay, uh, murder on the Orient Express. That's what's next on my list. All right, you've then. got the master list
1: though. Okay, because <laughs> you've seen more of these films than I have. All right, fair enough. Um, yeah, murder on the Orient Express is almost uh, it, it's a it's sort of an, an example of what we're talking about in the in the in the journeyman thing. Yeah, you know, uh, this is very mu- it's very much a, g- a genre film. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a murder mystery. Yeah, um, and he doesn't uh, Lumet doesn't sort of try to. Turn the genre on its head, or make it his own. He sticks with it and makes an awesome murder mystery.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's every when you think of a whodunit, this is the film you think of. Mm -hmm. I mean, and and as far as the way in which it's made, it's exactly what you expect. Um, Where he where he has fun with it is with the characters, at the very least with uh, Hercule Poirot, the Belgian. He's Belgian, right? Is that a call? The detective played by Albert Finney. And I've seen uh, Poirot played before by various uh, actors, uh, including Peter Ustinov, who's an actor I love. Um, And (laughs) I've never seen him played just so ridiculously. Um, but, But believably ridiculous. I mean just as so eccentric like he wear like when he goes to bed he wears like a little thing for his mustache so it doesn't get all mussed up uh-huh. and and just everything about him is so prim and proper that i mean the character it's in the character as well but somebody else could have played that down the the weird effeminate eccentricity of the of mm-hmm. the role but lumet chooses to play it up and of course albert finney is is game for that Um, but all the, you know, a lot of the other characters, um, Ingrid Bergman won a supporting actress Oscar for this, Mm. for this woman who's just, uh, who's like, uh, I think she's a nun, right? And she has worked with, uh, she's worked in Africa with the little brown babies (laughs) and, uh, and just, and to hear Ingrid Bergman, who I always thought is, as like, She's a very classy actress and a very classic actress, uh-huh. very restrained. And so to have her play this kind of, uh, you know, just wide-eyed, kind of panicky, uh, very goofy, eccentric woman uh-huh. uh, was delightful to me. And, and, it, and I would never have expected it. And, and that's, what I, that's one of the things that I do like about Lumet is he seems to have a pretty good sense of humor. Uh, even in the midst of things that are not comedies, uh-huh. and he will—he can make you laugh. Uh, in the midst of oh, this person was killed, and now we got to find out who did it. And at the time, who done it was not—I mean, there was the Thin Man, but the characters themselves were not really like the the suspects themselves were not funny. What was funny was the interaction between Nick and Nora Charles. Yeah, but. Lumet said like no some of these some of these suspects can be ridiculous too. Let's do that. And yeah, uh,
1: it's it's uh, it's weird to think like people who may be murderers are yeah. also comic relief. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. It's like gosh, I hope this person didn't do it cuz then does that make this whole thing ridiculous? <laughs> it does. Okay, just making sure. Um uh but yeah, and so murder on the Orient Express. I feel like that's maybe another one that that film students uh and or more specifically specifically like film snobs they might overlook it because oh it's a whodunit
1: yeah it seems like it, it does seem like kind of a square movie yeah and um like uh, okay, what what year is murder on the Orient express i didn't write, you it, didn't did it. write it's mid 70s it's mid 70s that's and that's what stuck out to me when I, I i saw it in high school on vhs yeah uh and i knew what it was about i had heard of it but I had always assumed it was maybe like twenty years older than it was, yeah. Because it it doesn't <laughs> seem like the kind of movie that came out of, you know, the the sort of golden age of seventies Maverick filmmaking. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it yeah. seems like a, a much more an old Hollywood movie. Yeah, uh, and that's I think that's part of the reason that it gets overlooked. It's a, it is uh, on it on its face, there's nothing too exciting about it, right? But it's actually one of the most uh, sort of entertaining movies in his whole uh on,
0: on on his whole resume uh, absolutely absolutely uh so next up is network oh what about dog day afternoon oh oh you're absolutely right sorry we're going by my list I've oh you've never list. seen dog Day. i've afternoon. never seen dog oh, Day afternoon d-
1: d- all right triumph david because <laughs> you've seen more of these than i have so i'm excited about uh dog day afternoon because yep. because it's awesome but also because uh Sidney Lumet didn't seem, well, and we'll talk about network again uh, as well in a second. But Sidney Lumet did not seem like uh, I don't know what his politics were, left but, leaning. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Even though he made Dog Day Afternoon and Network, he doesn't come off as much of a radical. You mm-hmm. know, he's not like Altman.
0: You know, something bothering you, Tyler? I'm sorry. I'm just looking at the at the at the the volume, and I feel like I should turn your mic up.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, let's get that done. Better, yes. Okay. <laughs> um, Sorry. <laughs> anyway, what I'm saying is that he doesn't seem like a Robert Altman who is right. Uh, like we talked about, Mash being a sort of snotty film. You yeah. know, he. Ho- however, Sidney Lumet felt left leaning or not, he wasn't. Uh, he he wasn't a radical, and I'm trying to think what the word is. He wasn't abrasive about it, or or <laughs> yeah. or, or brash at all confrontational Uh, one could say um yeah i'm saying he wasn't that right right. yeah and he he made dog day afternoon which is uh i mean it's a film about a, a gay man yeah robbing a bank to pay for his uh boyfriend's uh gender surgery yeah uh it has a part where he uh (laughs) <laughs> where Al Pacino leads the gathered crowd in chanting "Attica, Attica," yeah, you know, and I mean it's a movie that turns the bank robbers into into heroes, a- anti heroes, but yeah. you know, uh, but at no point does it feel like a radical confrontational film, right? Because once again, like in Twelve Angry Men, which is also a very left leaning film, um, he's more interested in story and character. And all that, all, all, all the politics, uh, it doesn't feel like. The, even though it may be the politics of the film and filmmaker, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like it's the politics of the character. Right. And since we, and since we like, I, I mean, I, I think anyone can like. Uh, even a, a homophobe could like Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah. Because it's not uh, a movie about a gay guy. Yeah. It's a movie about this guy. Yeah. And what he's going through, and he makes him sympathetic first. Yeah. Uh, and then puts in this sort of social and political uh, political things. But but they're never... I, 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 was, I was almost going to say that they're like sort of Trojan-horsed in, but they're not. It's not a message movie at all. Right. It's just right. all sort of... It's there, and it's
0: interwoven. Yeah, it's just... Yeah, it, that's that's the perfect way to say it. It's interwoven. It's just... It cannot be... It's not a supplement to the story. It's not undercutting the story. It, the story is not uh, meant to... Serve those politics. It's just a part of it. Uh-huh. That's a part of the time in which it was made, uh, and a part of, as you said, the character's beliefs. Um, I did have a question, though. Uh-huh. This might seem glib, but I do know. I do know. I did know that that was the reason that Al Pacino, uh, Al Pacino's character, robs the bank because he is gay and he his boyfriend is going to get a sex change. I have a question.
1: I think I might know what the. Question if everything is, goes
0: well. If everything goes off perfectly, they get the money, they get the sex change, then it's a man and a woman. Yeah. What does it become at that point?
1: I don't know. It's always kind of bothered me. Like, well, if this guy, if he's into men, why does he want his boyfriend to turn into a woman? Yeah. But I think it's just, I don't think it's cut and dry in that. I think he loves this guy and wants this guy to be happy. And if okay. then if it means that guy being a woman, then he's still going to love him because okay. he loves the person's heart and soul and whatever. Okay. And all that crap. All right.
0: <laughs> I, I thought it might be something like that, because I, I haven't seen the film, but I remember just being vaguely mystified by that. Um, and I'm sorry to completely deflate what you were saying about Dog Day Afternoon, because I've heard that it's just it is one of the most intense emotion you know uh, emotional films you'll ever see, like the uh-huh. Attica scene, which you you'll see that scene completely out of context in like film montages and stuff. Uh-huh. Um, but and and in that moment, it seems like a really cheesy moment. Uh, yeah. What uh, I mean, does it work in the film? Yeah, does it does it because
1: to... <laughs> the thing is, that it comes from a character who he's not really like a political animal himself, right? I think he just, uh, but I think he's he's a guy who's probably read about what happened in Attica, yeah, and uh, knows that this the type of people who are going to gather and cheer him on. That's probably a. Uh, uh, a flashpoint for them. Yeah. So it's just him trying to get the crowd on his side, really. Hmm. You know? I, I really don't think that Al Pacino's character really thinks or cares about what happened in, in Attica.
0: <laughs> yeah. And he's also being, uh, he's also right in front of everybody in, uh, couldn't the cops have shot him? Again, I haven't seen the film. Well,
1: John Cazale was inside with a whole <gasps> bunch, a bunch That's of hostages. Right.
0: That's right. Oh, I forgot John Cazale was in it.
1: Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, he's great.
0: Yeah. We should profile him. It'd, it'd be, be a short to, episode. Yeah, it'd be easy to do. <laughs> it wouldn't be short, actually. It's right. a thing. It'd be, be in-depth is what it would be.
1: Uh, so let's move on to Network. Network. Which is, because of Pat a much more uh, brazen political film. Oh, yeah. But it's still, if you go... I mean, I haven't watched it in a while, but I've seen it a couple times. Um, but people tend to remember the satire. Yeah. And the, uh, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Right. Um but really it, it's it, it, the movie has those parts but it's not really an over the top movie most of the time i mean really uh ooh.
0: well that's not it, i mean i'd say the the film itself is 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 heightened in everything as as most of what Chayefsky wrote at the time was, like the hospital where everything everybody was maybe a little too articulate, uh, regardless of whether they were yelling or not. Okay. But it's not strictly satire either. Yeah. It's I mean if you look at the Peter whole Finch. like
1: the whole William Holden yeah. which is a huge part of the movie, yeah. that's not I mean, that's very believable yeah. and and down to earth.
0: And it's about the emotional I mean Peter Finch yelling and Ned Beatty responding, and Robert Duvall's whole thing—that part, and and a section of Fade Dunaway's character—all really, the, about the
1: stuff that has to do with Fade Dunaway's job. Yeah, like not her as a person, but like right. the kind of stuff that she does as a television executive. Right. Uh, that's yeah, the, all satire. Yeah, the stuff that relates particularly to the way that the television network is run. Right. That's the
0: satire. But then you also see... But the film is about television comp- in general. And you actually see how... So th- the satire, the thing that people remember the most, is about the professional effects a- uh, uh, on people, but also the way it affected the f- it affects society and stuff. But then you get the other half of Faye Dunaway's role and William Holden. We'll breeze past some of these. Yeah. Um, and William Holden... And Beatrice Strait, you get the emotional effects on these people, and that's where you get the like the more subtle moments. I mean, Beatrice what...
1: Strait plays the wife. Yeah, yeah, she's great.
0: And and actually, as I was uh, researching, just kind of some things that uh, Sydney Lumet said. He said there are no small parts, just small actors, which is something I heard back in high school. Anytime somebody got a small part, <laughs> uh, and and I didn't know that he was the one that said that. Maybe he's not. Maybe he just repeated it. But. Man, he freaking believed it, clearly, that he's willing to give so much time to Ned Beatty and Beatrice Strait, both of whom got nominated, and Beatrice Strait actually won supporting actors for it. Uh, he was just... And the fact that he was willing to give Ned Beatty this... not Certainly not a nothing role, he's the head of the network, but like, or the head of the company that owns the network. Um, and Beatrice Strait is, of course, the wife of William Holden, who, and she is being cheated on. But another filmmaker would have I feel like they might have kind of cast these roles aside and been like, well, we can't bring in you know, these two nothing characters so late in the film and give them a whole monologue. We can't do that. But Lumet realized that, well, no, we have to do that because without seeing the effect that William Holden's affair is having, On a third party Uh who's not involved with television and its uh, you know dehumanizing uh, effects. If we don't see that, then the weight of this of this particular story is going to be gone.
1: Yeah, and if we don't have the Ned Beatty part, well, then we don't have that crazy awesome speech. (laughs) Damn right.
0: Which and it's that and David that it's that crazy awesome speech that got me uh, got me a part in Bus Stop.
1: Bus Stop was the. uh, yeah, the pan-Missourian play, <laughs> high school. That's right. Uh, on which uh, Tyler and I met. I was yeah. not an actor.
0: Yeah, he was... Uh, but you could have been. Again, stay uh, stay tuned. Uh, stay tuned. No, go back and listen to uh, the episode about acting to hear about uh, uh, David's acting experience. <laughs> okay. Um, um, all right, let's I, move I, on. The, I do want to say, actually, oh. real quick, uh, about the way Network is shot, specifically the moments uh, in TV uh, when, you know, when... An actual show is being shot. Um, you know, if you look at Twelve Angry Men, it all takes place in one room, and so close-ups are what you need to ha- what it needs to be about because it's confined. Uh-huh. You look at Network; there's a lot of what wi- I mean. There's there's not very many close-ups. It's a lot of really long shots, really wide shots, um, especially when you're seeing Howard Beale. You get all of him. You get uh-huh. from his shoes to the top of his head. You get the audience like everything about him just screams important and big, just even even before he says anything, just the way that he is framed. And the and the more he the more he becomes like a prophet to the to the country, Uh uh, the the wider the shot gets because he is being seen, but not so wide that it becomes small. It's just big enough to realize that this is a this is this man is saying grand things, and he's being viewed in a grand way by the country, right. and so he doesn't even have to say anything. And of course, when he does, it's crazy. But uh, <laughs> he doesn't even have to say anything for you to get how we are supposed to look at him. And so stuff like that, you know, it's it's a, it's not a flashy camera trick, but it is a conscious decision that he is making. Uh, about where to put the camera and how long to hold the shot for, and all that sort of thing. So that's I just wanted to mention that because I feel like a lot of people don't, and we and we haven't mentioned the way in which he shoots his films uh, in a while. Yeah. So I wanted to mention that there. Well,
1: let's uh let's move on because I'm sure you've got a lot to say about the Wiz.
0: I have so much to say. That's not true. I don't even want, know I, why I wrote it down. I have not he made seen it. it since I was a child. Um, but he
1: made it and he that's did make it. uh that's noteworthy that he made that movie
0: absolutely i mean you, you brought up altman earlier altman directed popeye and sinu directed the whiz uh, just and john houston directed annie like all these directors yeah in the late 70s early 80s they were all directing musicals and uh yeah, it was it was the hip thing to do but The Wiz, especially, is just such a... Because, he because first off, he's choosing to direct such such an unusual musical. Although, Popeye's pretty unusual. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, it's the story of The Wizard of Oz with an all-black cast. And it takes place in the, in a city. And it's really horrifying when, like, garbage cans, like, grow teeth and decide they want to eat these things. Uh-huh. Eat, eat these people. Uh, that terrified me as a child. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that's the thing is I, I'm sorry I don't remember much about how the film was made, but the ve- I'll, I'll say the very fact that he made it is fascinating to me, uh, yeah. and and I you know I looked up some of the reviews and, and everybody really likes a lot of the things that he did. They don't say that they don't get it never got any rave reviews, but a lot of people respected that he made this film specifically. So all right, moving on
1: to uh, a movie that I love but haven't seen in a long, long time, The yeah. Verdict.
0: The Verdict, which, uh, you know, this one, mo- I'd say perhaps even more so than any of his other films, uh, is just, it, it seems very straightforward. I mean, there's there's nothing flashy about it. Um, it just, it's the story of uh, an alcohol. I won't even say recovering alcoholic, because he doesn't start recovering until pretty late in the film yeah um, it's about an alcoholic lawyer who's just who happens to, who happens upon a good case uh, and just decides that he's going to kind of redeem himself personally and professionally uh, with this case and it's it, it has what I think is probably Paul Newman's best performance because it's his most it's, subtle it's definitely up there yeah um, but it's got great performance <gasps> Whoa, there goes David sneezing sorry Um. No. And it's got great performances by um, Jack Warden, who's a a favorite of mine and somebody that uh, Lumet uh, had worked with before. And James Mason. And listeners know that uh, one of my favorite kinds of roles is opposing counsel. I, <laughs> I love it uh, because it gives you so many opportunities to to be like kind of evil or cynical or whatever. I always enjoy it. Uh, because of the potential that the role has, and James Mason just plays the character as very quiet, but certainly uh, a little morally dubious, I would say. Uh-huh. Um, and I just, and I again, like to g- actually to go back to, to network. There are certain there are certain uh, camera things that he does that they certainly don't call attention to themselves. But one would like when uh, when Paul Newman is giving his closing statement. Uh, the camera is way far back, and it's it's in fact so far back that you see the backs of the jury's heads, and you realize, oh, he's putting us in the position of the jury. Uh-huh. And then I think it zooms in a little bit, but or you know what it does? I'm sorry. It starts with a close up, and then it does the it does the opposite of what someone would think, where you normally it starts wide shot and you and if you're gonna and you zoom in. Yeah, where he starts with the close up and then backs up. And unlike network, uh, he backs up enough that Frank Galvin, the character, now actually looks pretty small, uh-huh. and which is kind of how he's feeling. He doesn't have a lot of confidence in his closing statement, um, and and it puts us in the position of the jury, which is to see this small man just, just doing his doing what he can for this case, and and it's so there's stuff like that, and then there's a, a part where uh Paul Newman is informed that the girl that he is with excuse me, uh the girl that he is with uh has, has uh like sold him out to the other side. And uh Jack Warden, his his assistant, tells him this but the film uh they choose to place the camera on the top of a building uh across the street and you see Jack Warden talk to Paul Newman on the sidewalk you don't hear what he says and you don't even see like a they're so small in the frame you don't even see like a big reaction or a facial reaction and w- why would he do that that's a big moment uh-huh you know and it's like well you don't you don't need to see his reaction in the moment because you know it's going to be awful and you can and he's also like leaving something to the imagination and that's yeah. what i like is that but by, by
1: that point in the film, you know the character well enough.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's fairly late in the film. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and I like that Mamet, uh, uh, Mamet wrote, the, wrote the script. And, um, I'm going to talk about that in a second. Yeah. And, and Mamet is a guy who really liked dialogue, and Sidney Lamette was a great director of dialogue. But I like that in that moment he realized, you know what, I don't need it here. I just I will use what we as as you said David I will use what the audience has learned about the characters to Ooh. fill in the blank. Plus we the audience have already learned what he's about to learn. Right.
1: And because we're so uh, in tune with the character that, by that point in the movie. Yeah. We it kind of in our heads have already gone through it. That's true. We yeah. don't need to go through it again. And that's Right. That's a testament to to his ability to direct uh, and 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 that's it comes back to what I'm saying about Sydney Lumet that uh, and what you said right at the beginning is that he's a, he's a director of actors right you know so when I say Sydney Lumet's ability Sydney ability to direct I mean his ability to to direct an actor yeah you know and he got I mean he got a good one with Paul Newman and you're right it might be his best performance um it, but that's it's that's a testament to that that once again uh. Sinema had put more you're talking about Cameron tricks and stuff but he put most of his eggs in the acting basket. Absolutely. And and uh <clears throat> there is no reason to uh uh have any
0: doubt that he could pull it off because that that was the that was his best basket. <laughs> yeah, and um and that's the thing is I think a good director also knows he he also realizes that an audience is going to be watching this. You're absolutely right. Because the audience knew first, and we feel that sense of betrayal, well, we don't need to see it. Yeah. Because we know what he's feeling because we felt it already. And it would just be superfluous to show it. Yeah. Like, uh, Sidney Lamette understands what it is to be a, a movie watcher, uh-huh. to be an audience member. And he. My, I, I, I'm reminded of, uh, of when Richard Donner talks about The Omen and how. One of the a sequence where a character gets his head cut off and it's in slow motion. Uh, he basically assumed that when the head gets cut off, audience members will cover their face for probably about three seconds before they think before they feel like it'll probably be over. So he just said uh, this sequence is going to be five seconds, uh-huh. so that when they look through their head, it, it th- look through their fingers, uh, it's still going on and the head <laughs> is still being chopped off. <laughs> yeah. and, and so it, it's that mentality of recognizing that yes it's not just going to be you watching this other people will and they've been conditioned by other movies to feel a certain way or think a certain thing it's funny you know for a movie
1: that's kind of a uh, silly and kind of a curio we talk about the omen a lot
0: I, br- I think I bring yeah we bring that up and like his views on fish yeah and, and, uh, and
1: baboons are dangerous <laughs> <laughs> baboons are dangerous <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do love that movie. I know it's silly, but I love it. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, real quick to talk about David Mamet. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people who so, sometimes someone will direct David Mamet and it sounds like David Mamet directed it, you right. know? Right. Like, uh, I mean, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, as much as I love it, uh, it feels very much like the self-directed movies that that he's written.
0: Uh, it feels like it, but I mean, there are certain. It's, the dialogue it it
1: sounds like it, at least.
0: It doesn't sound as stilted.
1: Sure, not not to the same extent, right, right? But it's definitely on that side of the line. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, whereas the verdict and I would say Wag the Dog as well, yeah, uh, are movies that you go really he that it didn't sound like David Mamet characters until you think about it and you realize that it was, but but that uh, it it was a director who was not sort of bound by the cadence yeah. that David Mamet tries to, as much as I like David Mamet, that he tries to force upon what he writes.
0: Right. And although at the same time, the verdict was pretty early, so maybe, and he hadn't, and Mamet had not yet developed a lot of his tricks. Right. Um, I don't think, he, had, he hadn't even written Glen Gary Glen Ross at the time. Um, but the, uh, and if you watch the the commentary on the verdict, Sidney Lumet clearly has a lot of respect for Mamet. Yeah. But he's going to make his movie. Yeah. You know? Um, okay, so on. let's yeah, we, we've been going for a while
1: and we're, we're getting to sort of the uh, the less not that these are bad movies but there's yeah. a, a less sort of rich part of his resume here. right
0: although I mean a lot of people uh, I've mentioned Q&A on this show before uh, Q&A but I, I'm trying to think of it in a different way now I'm trying to think of it in the terms of melodrama which uh-huh. and if you look at it through that it's it makes a lot more sense. Everything is just really over the top and ridiculous, right down to... Oh, I'm so happy I get to say this again. Uh, the film was nominated for a Razzie for Worst Song, uh-huh. in which Ruben Blades... Spe- spelled Blades. R- Ruben, yeah, Ruben pronounced Blades. Pronounced incorrectly. I know, man. I want to want call him Blades, though. Because that's awesome. Do if you think you his friends opp- call him Blades? I don't know, maybe. If you have the opportunity, why squander it? Yeah, And so... Um, but he wrote and performed uh, the, the song of Q&A entitled Don't Double Cross the Ones You Love. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> which is just, oh, if you think the, f- the title is fun, imagine the song. It's difficult to find on the, on the, on the, on the, on the, the internet. And so, uh, so it's, it's a very melodramatic film. That said, there are a couple, there's a lot of really good performances in it it's just the film is – I mean, it's about – it's kind of about racism and to a certain degree about homophobia. Um, imagine – Crash is not a subtle film, Paul Haggis's Crash, uh, and it's about race. Wait, it is? It, it is. Uh, maybe it's a little more subtle than you think because I didn't get that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, so that that's a film about race. Imagine a film that makes Crash look like, oh – Stranger than paradise, <laughs> um, like, and that's what Q and A is. Everything is so huge, but within that, Nick Nolte, for example, who plays a dirty, racist, homophobic, but probably gay cop, uh which any one of those would be enough t- uh, enough uh, license to overact, <laughs> um, which he does. But he really, Nick Nolte, especially, really creates. Just a loathsome character, but but you also just pity him. He's a it's a really interesting character, a really interesting performance. So much so that I would actually recommend Q and A on his performance alone. But again, it is melodrama of the highest order. Maybe not highest. That implies a, like a really great thing. <laughs> it's melodrama right. of an order.
1: All right. Next up is Night Falls on Manhattan, Nightfalls which on I've on Manhattan. always wanted to see and haven't. It's, did, did Ruben Blades Blottis write any
0: songs for this one? <laughs> Not that I recall, uh, but it's got a lot of. Uh, it has. It's 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 a pretty standard kind of film about uh, about political corruption and 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 all that sort of thing, and it's got again really solid cast. It's got Andy Garcia, Richard Dreyfuss, uh, Ian Holm, James Gandolfini. Uh, I don't remember much about it. Uh, I'm sure the. I haven't seen it in probably oh ten 10 years or so mm-hmm. I remember really liking it at the time And it's For those who, who Found us uh, by way of the slash film cast uh, We talked about state of play When mm-hmm. we were on there And David and I had serious problems with the film But if you were to look at it strictly As just a Kind of a by the numbers thriller It's not bad And Nightfalls on Manhattan is one of those kind of by-the-numbers thriller where, yes, it's about political corruption, but it's not going to be incredibly challenging. Uh, a film that I would compare it to is City Hall
1: with yeah, Al I've Pacino
0: and, and John Cusack. It's, it's that kind of thing. where. But Doesn't it still, City Hall also feature
1: Danny Aiello talking about uh, Carousel?
0: I don't recall. Uh, maybe. I think Danny Aiello is in it. So maybe he's,
1: he's a fan of musicals. His oh, okay. character, and at one point he talks about Carousel and specifically the song that was a real fine clam bake or whatever yeah. the song is. <laughs> and
0: he just talks about how he likes it or dis- dislikes it.
1: He okay. He's talking. I think he's talking to Al Pacino maybe, but he's talking about how much he loves Carousel and he's like, oh, the beginning of the second act, and he just says that was a real fine clam bake.
0: <laughs> That's what he says. Uh, Danny Aiello. I like City Hall um yeah and but it 's you know and it's it 's like that i i 'd say it 's a it 's a really great example of those kinds of movies um you know it 's nothing that re- clearly it 's nothing that 'll really stick out in your head but it's it 's a perfectly fine enjoyable film would you compare it to true colors starring james spader yes yes it 's very much like the, true colors but, no, it's but better, it's not better as than good as CD yeah it 's better than true colors i 'll yeah, say true true colors wasn 't great but yeah um But it's perfectly. It's worth watching. Not to mention, it's got Richard Dreyfuss, and you know what he is opposing counsel. All right, (laughs) and so now we're talking. (laughs) So, uh, so yeah, we can move on now.
1: Let's move on to you. Well, you wanted to talk about "Find Me Guilty," which I didn't see.
0: I really enjoyed "Find Me Guilty." I hear a lot of good things about it. It's it's not great. It's not perfect. It has a a lot of really great performances in it, as one would expect. Uh, From Vin Diesel. From He's but like he's great in it. But Linus Roach is opposing counsel. Um, Peter Dinklage is in the film, and first off, no reason to cast Peter Dinklage. I mean, the char- I don't know if the character himself was because uh, it's based on a true story. Right. I don't know if the guy himself was a dwarf. Um, it seems like that would be a weird way to go with the role if he wasn't. Um, but just in general, like they didn't have to. If the character, if the if the actual lawyer was a dwarf, I feel like another director would have just not had that, uh-huh. and because especially because no attention is called to it in the film, aside from just the fact that he is, nobody makes fun of him for it or anything like that, and and so so yeah, it, the, just in that casting decision and just keeping the character what it is. Um, is in my don't refer to him as it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, yes. Uh oh jeez. <laughs> you hear about that Michael Vick thing where he had he had uh, dwarves fight. Um he actually got less time. Uh and so so the uh so like casting decisions like that and the very fact that he did cast Vin Diesel in the in the lead role and got a, a really great, funny, sensitive performance out of him. Um well, I've always
1: yeah, I've always said Vin Diesel is capable of being a good actor. He's just more interested in being a movie star.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I don't think Vin Diesel is stupid. No. Uh, I, I just think that he wants to be an action star and get big paychecks. Yeah. Most of the time. But I think he, he can be a good actor. Oh, he's, absolutely. He's good in Saving private
0: Ryan. He's good in Boiler
1: Room. Uh, yeah, he's and he's, he's actually good in Pitch Black. That's uh, right, he is. Uh,
0: yeah, it's too bad that movie turned into The Chronicles of Riddick. Well... Can't win them all, yeah. Um, but find me guilty, and again, uh, he does a lot of the things that he that he would that he did in uh, the verdict. A lot of very wide shots, so that because it was a huge, it was a huge trial. I believe it was wound up being the longest running trial in American history. Uh. Um, and so the gallery is always full. You know, there's a lot of at the very least with defendants. There's like tw- I think there's like 20 defendants, and so um, and so a lot of really wide shots. Uh, Of To really just Capture the enormity of it I I don't know Aside from Oh shoot I do not remember the name Of the guy who played Mo Green In The Godfather Do you remember? I don't It's Nick something I believe Damn it That bothers me Cause he does Cause he's basically Kind of the head of the Of this Of uh, this family Uh And uh, so it will show him By himself a lot But aside from that It usually shows All the gangsters uh, As a group and, um, but again, there's also, you know, uh, scenes that take place like in Judge's chambers between two or three characters, and he adapts his directing style for that as well because it's much smaller, more intimate, a lot more close-ups. And, but also, it's just it's just a it's just a fun movie to watch. I mean, it and the script so much of it is taken from the specific transcripts of the trial, and he just finds the drama in that because even in really dramatic cases trial cr- transcripts can seem probably pretty dull I uh-huh. have to assume uh, but he finds even in the moments that are specifically meant to be dull he finds humor in them F- Find Me Guilty is one of the funniest movies that he's directed um, which actually doesn't say much but it is it, <laughs> I would say it's a, its an actual comedy it's meant to be a comedy well, um, cool. and I highly recommend it Find Me Guilty good stuff
1: alright well let's um, we actually don't have to spend a lot of time talking about before the devil knows you're dead because yeah. uh, we talked about it before uh That's right. in early 2008 when it was on i think both of our top 10 of it the was year yes lists uh but th- i think that i mean that right there is is the best testament to i mean we just went from his first film was 12, 12 angry men yeah in 1957 yeah. right and then 50, 50 years later
0: <laughs> geez, yeah
1: he made before the devil knows you're dead uh and it's awesome
0: it is i mean it's just and it's it's awesome and it's it's vibrant emotionally. It's not find me guilty as much as I like it. It's the kind of not very challenging film that you would expect kind of an older director to do. You get I, I will say this about it.
1: Okay. Uh I'm sorry, did I interrupt you? No, go ahead. Um we talked about how he wasn't uh with Dog Day Afternoon and Network, how he wasn't, you know, uh he didn't have the the what's the, what's the word that you used uh I can't remember, but he wasn't like brash and uh, right. annoying or anything like that. Uh he was, yeah, he was always warm and very human. Yeah. Now I, I don't know if this comes through and find me guilty, but I think before the devil knows you're dead is the most cynical film in his entire resume, and it's and it, it and it seems weird, hmm. um, because it seems like it kind of tends to go the other way. Young people tend to be more cynical. Yeah. You know, uh, and I, I like that. Sinema made a film that could have been made by someone like from not from a technical standpoint, but just like from its tone, it feels like it might have been made by somebody just out of film school, you know, yeah. who's like still sort of like pretty sure they're the shit, you know, <laughs> and everyone else is stupid, you know, and it's, uh, yeah, it's it's, but it's in a good way because it's the, the all all the all the stuff that we've talked about in his career up until then is still there, and before the devil knows you're dead. Uh, still, great, he's getting great performances. Yeah. Uh, out, out of um, uh, who am I thinking of? Who's uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman? No, the the dad, uh, Albert Finney. Albert Finney. Yeah. Uh, that's an amazing, yeah, amazing performance. But at the same time, he, uh, the movie
0: is really cynical. It's it is very it, it's very cynical, and it's just and it's really uncomfortable in a lot of places. I mean, when. When Philip Seymour Hoffman is driving away from his uh, his mother's funeral, right? Yes, and has that outburst. I mean, it's again, it's a very vibrant film. It's not passive. I mean, it get it is freaking. I, I hate to use this term, but it is like right in your face. It's not a film that once you watch it, you can forget whether you like it or not. Because mm-hmm. I know people that that don't care for the film. Yeah, but, I can see that. Yeah, but it's just it's it's uncomfortable and awkward and tense. Uh, and it's just really, it's, it's awesome to me that a guy in his mid to late eighties directed that film, a film with a lot of sex and nudity, a lot of violence, a lot of swearing and just unabashed in how, in just how cynical and just how unpleasant it is in a lot of ways. Um, and that's what I like about him as a director. I feel like he would always, there are certain things that he was drawn to, certainly, but he li- I think he liked to challenge himself a great deal. And Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, I mean, some of his films are very cynical, but he still, fi- you know, in Network, he still finds a William Holden, a, Bill- a Beatrice Strait, like characters like that, yeah. to focus on. In this, I mean, the characters have moments where you think, oh, maybe they'll do the right thing. I hope they do. But not necessarily because you wish them happiness, but because you hope nobody else dies. Yeah, <laughs> and so um, he. he uh,
1: you can also say that Sidney was one of the for earliest directors to uh, ha- have a, a real eye for Michael Shannon and know how awesome he was. Oh yeah, because he hadn't really done. What had he been in before? Oh, he's, before I mean, that. he's been in a bunch of stuff. Yeah, but, but in. But yeah. what he did in Before the Devil, what Sidney Lemet did in casting him was he took, it's sort of like the Beast of Straight and Ned Beatty thing, because Michael Shannon's not in Before the Devil do You're Dead a lot. Yeah. He's like, there's a couple of scenes and then he has the big one that yeah. he's in. Uh, and Sidney Lemet saw that I need to pay attention when casting this guy. Right. You know, right. this is a, as, as, as small a role as this is. Uh, and even, I mean, it, it's what happens with that guy is not inconsequential, but. Right. You could have had a sort of mediocre performance, cut uh, actor, you know, cut a few more lines, and it still would have had the same impact because it's really more about Ethan Hawken and Philip Seymour Hoffman, what happens at the end there. Right, I mean... But uh, casting Michael Shannon showed that Sidney that understood every, like, every side of the story that he was telling.
0: Yeah. it's. A, I mean, it's a pivotal scene, but it is more about these two guys, and so you could have just plugged anybody in there, and it still... and. With him directing, it still would have been a tense yeah. scene, but putting in someone that we've seen before and that we know and that will really do something with that role really adds to the tension and it, and you really feel like, uh, this is, this is the most important, maybe not the most important scene, but like the, from a plot standpoint, this yeah. is the, the kind of the climax yeah. right here. Um yeah, and it's I I really love before the devil knows you're dead. I own it. I have not watched it since I bought it because I don't. It's much like Pawnbroker. It's it has I feel like certain melodramatic tendencies uh, in the in the in the Greek tragic tone of the of the film, uh, and I, it's not a movie that you can watch casually. No, you definitely. know, uh, but it's really yeah. I I love that he made such. Such a great, interesting, memorable film so late in his career. Yeah. Um, and
1: it also star- has uh, features Brian F.O. O'Byrne, yeah. who I have vowed to mention on the show as often as possible because he's awesome and needs to be in more stuff.
0: Brian F.O. O'Byrne. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, I, I've seen Serpico, but it was so long ago and I remember so little of it, unfortunately, that I didn't want to bring it up. Uh, and so, and not, not that matters, we've been going for a while anyway, but, so I'm sure that we've missed, uh, some films that, uh, that you guys want to talk about. By all means, email us, or you can talk about it on the forum. Please talk about it on the forum, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, let's see. So, yeah, uh, in a couple weeks, we will announce, uh, you know, the, well, we won't announce all hundred, but...
1: No, we'll post the top 100, and we'll probably talk about the top 10.
0: right, Right, right. And so, uh... Yeah, and if you, you know, get, give a look at the top hundred characters, and it'll be posted much the same way, uh, each one have, having its own entry and a little paragraph about why it's included and that sort of thing. So, um, so yeah, uh, thanks everybody for listening. You can get David over on Twitter. Over, right? yeah,
1: at, at, at the pretension. At That's the pretension. Twitter.com slash the pretension. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, you can email us at David at com or Tyler at com. Right. You can listen to Tyler's podcast, More Than One Lesson, which is on iTunes. That's right. Or at MoreThanOneLesson.com. Yep. Uh, and I don't know if your, if MoreThanOneLesson.com has this, but BattleshipPretension.com has a donate button. It sure which does, Which I've mentioned yeah. three times this episode. <laughs> yeah. Because <what? laughs> I feel like we've, we've fallen behind. I want to mention it once an episode. I think we've probably gone three episodes without mentioning it, so...
0: Yeah, okay, all right, fair enough yeah. <laughs> We don't really mention it with, when we have guests on That's probably for the best uh, We should have them mention it <laughs> Anyway, so, uh, but yeah, and of course uh, A special thanks to, uh, to Frank Conniff and, and Bill Dwyer uh, It was a lot of fun recording with them Yeah um, And so, uh, yeah, so thanks to them And thanks to you, the listener For listening And we will get you next time Bye Bye